0: Hello and welcome to this Institute for government, government event asking whether the government needs to pick which areas to level up. Um, it's great to be joined by some people in the room and then also to be um, joined by many more tuning in online. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank Lloyds Banking Group for kindly sponsoring this event. So the leveling up agenda that was fleshed out in February's white paper um, showed that leveling up is unabashedly broad Its 12 missions cover reducing regional disparities across a whole host of areas, from economic performance to well-being to public services and more besides. And almost all of the areas need levelling up according to at least one of the missions. Um, And on top of that, explicit levelling up policies that have been introduced so far, like the levelling up funds, have also spread money quite widely. Now, given that the government is not planning to spend a lot more money in order to deliver levelling up, there may be a risk that the jam of public funding is going to be spread too thinly to make a meaningful difference to these regional disparities. And So given that, does the government need to be more selective? That's the question that we're um, bringing to a brilliant panel today. So first in the room, we have Paul Swinney um, joining us as Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities. Welcome, Paul. And then joining us online, we have Andrew McPhillips, who's the Chief Economist at the Northern Powerhouse Project. Welcome, Andrew. And we also have Selene Saxby um, who is MP for North Devon, vice chair of the APPG on coastal communities um, and also a PPS to DEFRA in the government. Welcome Selene. Um, I'm just going to flag now that Selene very kindly is joining us and then rushing off to ask a question um, in the House of Commons. So she is going to leave five or so minutes early when she drops off the screen. Don't worry, that is planned. So just a bit of housekeeping before we get going. So for those watching online, please do start asking your questions now on Slido. We'll have plenty of time in the second half of the session to address those questions. Um, If you can, please let us know who you are and where you're tuning in from. It's always good to get a bit more of a sense of, of who's asking the questions. There'll also be an opportunity for people in the room to ask questions. Please just raise your hand when the time comes and wait for the microphone to come to you, please. And then finally, please do follow along and join the conversation on Twitter. We'll be live-tweeting it from the at um, IFG events profile, and we'll also be using the hashtag #ifg_levelingup. so please do follow that along if you're online or in the room. Okay, so without further ado, let's get on to um, the main topic for today, and Paul, I'll come to you first. So with the publication of the white paper in February, we do now know that leveling up is very broad. Um, Do you think the missions and metrics that the white paper laid out make it easier for us to know which areas should be prioritized?
1: Well, um, so the first thing to say is that it's great that there are missions and metrics in there. I think if we look at approaches to this in the past, um, they've been absent, uh, and I think it's made it even more difficult to try and pin down what it is that government is trying to do so I think we should applaud that. In terms of what the the tensions and trade-offs are though that are trying to be addressed I don't think that probably is particularly clear within the metrics Um, and I think that's probably where there needs to be a little bit more work done to understand exactly what that looks like and where it is you know this government or the next government indeed uh, would be uh, looking to actually uh, concentrate where it spends its money. I guess there's there's a little bit in there when you look at the productivity one where there is um, where there's this designation of trying to give each region uh, its own internationally competitive city. I think there is a bit of a a choice there. Um, I think if you look at where the innovation accelerators are being uh, being centrally located, it's Manchester, Birmingham and and Glasgow. Again, there's a choice there. And I think we should applaud the government for making that choice because politically that is not easy to do. Um, But certainly I I think there's, in a number of the other areas, it isn't necessarily that clear about um, about what those choices and trade-offs are. I think implicitly they're there, explicitly they're not. And that um, can always cause problems, given when you're trying to get a, a very big machine in terms of Whitehall, but actually an even bigger machine and when you put local government in there as well, to try and point the same direction.
0: Thanks very much, Paul. That's really interesting and yeah, certainly fits with a lot of the work that we've done on, on the missions, um, which has, as, as you say, applauded the fact that there are some, but there's hmm. certainly work to go. Um, Andrew, I'll, I'll come to you next. Um, so the, the North and Midlands has obviously been a big part of the levelling up conversation. And, the red wall, and so on. But these are also diverse regions. So is leveling up in practice gonna mean different things in different places? And do you think there are specific areas that really should be the priority?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's gonna have to look different in different places. As, as Paul's just mentioned, if you look at the white paper, this is about, it's about trying to reduce inequalities and you, you've got different challenges in different areas. So some of them it's about pay, some it's about connectivity, and that's physical and digital. Um, connectivity to make sure that people can engage in, in a modern economy, um, educational attainment, health outcomes. So there's a, there's a wide range of measures. Now, I think we probably all realise that lots of these overlap um, and that they're not going to be treated in isolation. But some areas will have much more acute, perhaps health, health outcomes that need to be targeted than some others. So I think there's going to necessarily need to be um, a difference in, in what the solutions are. And that'll probably come on to talking about devolution and local areas knowing what's best. That I, I imagine we'll come on to um, we'll come on to later. But most of these, we do know that lots of them um, occur in our most deprived neighbourhoods, um, and there are some areas of the country that have a much higher concentration of those neighbourhoods. So you're probably going to see that yes, these do exist across the country, but there are certain pockets of, of you know very concentrated neighbourhoods in a particular local authority area or a metro mayor area that are going to need much greater input and intervention than some other areas of the country. Um, Clearly, I'm going to fight the case for the North. Um, That's not going to come as a surprise. And that's because if you look at the geography of the Northern Powerhouse and the scale that we're talking about, if that can become um, one functional economic area in effect and become one travel to work area, then it's probably unrivaled elsewhere in England in terms of the transformative effect it could have on the UK economy. Great,
0: thanks very much, Andrew. Lots that we can pick up on later there. So on to Selene. Um, now on many metrics, the Met Southwest the South are some West. of the most deprived communities um, in the UK. Do you feel like so far at least that there are areas outside the North and Midlands that maybe are missing out a bit on, on levelling up or have not been enough of a focus?
3: Um, I think with levelling up, the whole point is is that we reach all the regions. So I, I think it's unhelpful if we're constantly pitching ourselves against other parts of the country. And, and also the last thing I want is people saying it's a race to the bottom because we're more deprived than you are. And um, So I think it is important to actually, as we move through this, recognise there have been areas of the country that I think historically have been other, underinvested in. And that the first phase of this has been obviously quite broad brush and a lot of big projects across cities, um, obviously in the southwest. I don't have a city in my constituency at all, Um, and therefore it's much more nuanced in terms of levelling up. But my constituency is home to the two poorest wards in Devon, Um, and i think we also need to look at big counties like devon where we actually on average everything's fine but that hides a huge disparity between the north and the south of the county and that there are pockets of deprivation and and pockets of exclusion within even what look like the most affluent parts of the country Um, and what i really hope as we move through this agenda is that we are able to actually put together policies and solutions that start to tackle that those much smaller pocket um, and actually have more rural solutions solutions for around the coast
0: and for market towns. Thanks very much, Slane And Paul, perhaps I can come to you on, on that. I think both Andrew and Slane have pointed out the importance of sort of looking more, more locally than just sort of at the regional level and certainly yes. some of the missions as they're set out are at the, uh, quite a high level. What, what do you, how do you think the government can go about that? What are the main barriers to them actually focusing more, more locally within regions?
1: Well, uh, uh, there's there's a broader point to this, and I think there's a a more specific uh, point to make around it. So the broad point is that we, um, and maybe it's because levelling up makes it sound like it's going to make everywhere the same, is that if we are successful with levelling up, everywhere shouldn't be the same, because different places play different roles in the national economy, certainly from the economy perspective. So um, from a productivity perspective especially, um, we should still see variation across the country. I think the big challenge we have is that you know Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, and our biggest cities behind London are not playing the role they should be, and that's costing you know, not only the regional economy a lot of money, but actually the national economy a lot of money as well. Um, but we shouldn't be expecting you know Cornwall, sorry, um, Cumbria, to be as productive as what Manchester should be. Cumbria may be a better version of what it is currently, a better version of itself, but we should see that that variation between. So it's not about making all those areas the same. In terms of then what the – actually, transport falls into a similar position too. I think it's it's just much more difficult to provide public transport in a very low-density rural area than what it is in a very high-density city. And so the ambition um, uh, around trying to get every transport area or every sort of travel to work area up to transport levels of what London's got, public transport levels, I think, again, that is probably fairly far-fetched, and we should expect to see variation in that across the country. Um, not to say we can't make the likes of Manchester, Leeds, etc. much better than what they are, but actually I think in, in somewhere like Cumbria, I think improving public transport is pretty difficult because of literally the physical nature of the place. In terms of then, so that's sort of a framework for thinking about this. In terms of then how you go about doing it, I think that gets us into the, the devolution conversation that Andrew touched on, in that it's going to be impossible, I think, to deliver all of this from the centre. Um, it is quite interesting that the government has decided to create uh, levelling up directors, one for uh, each region, which feels like it is quite still a a centralist move, I would say. I think it's a sensible thing to do to try and provide that bridge. But I think uh, it's only sensible if there's there's something that to build a bridge to. And at the moment, in terms of devolution, I think we've got obviously uh, fairly constrained or, uh, or narrow level of devolution to certain parts of the country. In fairness, the white paper sets out quite ambitious uh, targets for that. I think that's the, for me, actually, that devolution element is the most important part of the white paper. Uh, If we get that infrastructure set up, which actually is is probably something that doesn't require a lot of money, going back to your uh, opening comments, that's going to be a pretty important part of being able to to deal with the variation that we see across the country, deal with different challenges that different places uh, face, but also be aware that, you know, this can't be about making everywhere the same and we should still expect to see. It's about making each version, each place the best version of itself rather than necessarily sort of pinning it to, uh, to everywhere being the same.
0: And, and Selene, Selene, do you agree with that? And do you have a sense of what that might look like in the Southwest? And I suppose also um, sort of following on from Paul's point, how important do you think therefore sort of local control over policy levers is in making that a reality?
3: Um, I certainly think, you know, issues like public transport are completely different in rural Britain. Um, But I do think we can't just we need to do more with our policies to actually ensure that they reach into rural Britain in a way that sometimes they don't at the present time. And so levelling up in my constituency is very much about the town of Ilfracoon, where the two wards are. Um, and it's very hard to tackle some of the issues around rurality and their coastal location because they're not going to change, and we're not going to suddenly get any closer to Exeter either as our nearest city. So um, for us, it's a lot around digital connectivity, but it's also around skills. I mean, we've touched on productivity, but the productivity in the southwest is very, very low. We have more people on universal credit and work than any other region in the UK. Um, So I think there is something there around skills and aspiration, um, which obviously in many ways costs significantly less And if you're needing to build big infrastructure projects, I I, I think it's far more than just money. It's about identifying these things. And part of that does come back to local management. But we in Devon currently have a system of um, we're obviously looking forward to our devolution deal. But we do currently have a system with multiple layers of council. And so whilst there is power at a local level, some of the projects we're looking to deliver. Do we really have enough of those skilled? People to to be doing that. You know, we obviously are dealing with a very significant housing crisis, um, and I hate the word crisis, but I think it probably is a crisis in Devon and Cornwall. Um, and we really do need some unique solutions to tackle that down there. And some of that is council led, some of that's government led. And I, I do just have some concern that some of the very technical areas like planning for example um is it how good is it that it's all de- devolved down to a very very local level where actually some of these very small district councils have got immense challenges we have you know vacancies in every single sector in north devon because there's nowhere for anyone to live so it's quite hard to move up there so i, I think there are other challenges as, as we devolve that power down as to whether or not we've actually got the the right resources in the right places to make sure that we can actually deliver what we're trying to
0: yeah no that's a really yeah. amazing, Andrew, obviously within the Northern Powerhouse, there are a few, um, a few metro mayors, sort of, at least close to it and within. How does what Selene said there sort of fit with the, with with your experience? You think that sort of that that slightly higher level of, um, of sort of devolved, um, government has been useful in, in delivering some of those policies?
2: Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say if you the, the obvious example to turn to first is Greater Manchester. Um, they're much further down the road and much more experienced in in the devolution journey than, than some of the other metro mayors that are still still relatively new. So I think you can see what happens when you've had the you know the respective uh, constituents of Greater Manchester come together and work towards that common goal. They've got the mayor in place and, and they're moving down and starting to be. For want of a better word, trusted to be given more powers. Um, And I think what we want to see is that as Manchester prove that they can do it and others build up the capability, that that is the expectation rather than needing to necessarily make a a strong business case to the Treasury. That should just be an automatic route that you're going down once you've proved the capability. Um, And I think, you know, we've seen that um, Andy Burnham in Manchester is now taking control of the buses. It's something that. In the transport conversation buses tend to get lost amongst the train infrastructure debates that we have um but it's something that affects a lot of his constituents of the population of manchester and reaches some of the um probably not quite as rural as some of the constituency but places that aren't as well connected to mainline rail um so i think that's about when you bring the local angle and somebody in in whitehall and dft would never have really considered that um to give you an example, if we, if we get into transport infrastructure, when, when we talked about Northern Powerhouse Rail, one of the arguments for there not being a completely brand new line and a new station in Bradford is because hardly anybody travels between Bradford and Manchester. Now, obviously, the reason for that is that the connection between Bradford and Manchester is terrible. Um, and what we're talking about is transformational projects. And there does need to be aware that decisions like that can be delegated so that people can make decision that is a bit more grounded in understanding the areas and what transformative nature some of these projects can have so i think yes there needs to be the devolution down to areas that have the capacity and it isn't down to um probably districts and town councils there needs to be a slightly higher level of that but at the same time recognizing those neighborhoods so there's lots of local intelligence that goes on without necessarily giving the control and the funding and i think a metro mayor probably is the is the right kind of scale to do that
0: you've all emphasized the importance of, of devolution. De- I know Paul, you said specifically that maybe that means you don't need that much much more money, but if you know local leaders need, need money to be able to do something, so I wonder how, how much really is, is this about more money and does require more money and then at that point is the government going to need to be clearer about its choices so take the integrated rail plan, for example, which is, is predominantly in, in your neck of the woods Andrew that that is a choice that the government has made. So I don't know, Paul, do you, do you think there is a risk that, that money will just get spread too thinly and therefore not make that much of a difference?
1: So I, de- so I definitely think there is a, a risk of that. So um, there needs to be more money, for
0: sure, but devolution, one of the, the beauty of
1: devolution is actually it's not, uh, in principle, a very expensive thing for the lever to, to be able to pull And I think uh, both Michael Gove and, and Andy Haldane have said separately that actually this was a, a big change, almost sort of constitutional change. that. Um, uh, it's about getting the internal wiring right, and it's really, really important. And they were a bit frustrated that I think there was a lot of shouting about uh, how there was very little extra money, and people had missed the fact that there was this actual potentially very massive change in the, the white paper. I have sympathy with that view. Uh, I think that uh, that greater devolution is, is, a, is a necessity in order to deliver um, the things that the levelling up white paper is trying to achieve, but also what is a necessity is a great amount of money. Now... Uh, it's almost becoming a bit of a cliche now, everyone probably uh, knows it, but the, the figure for bringing East and West Germany back together is uh, two billion, uh, sorry, 2, trillion. 2 trillion euros and still counting. You know, that's a huge amount of money that was spent there. Now, was that money spent wisely? I don't know. Um, is that the exact figure that we need to spend in the UK? I don't know. But it certainly gives you a yardstick at the very least. That, you know, if we've got you know, a couple of uh, competitive pots of around about £5 billion and then a white paper where the Treasury hasn't assigned any extra money towards it, tells you that we're probably a little bit out of kilter there and there does uh, need to be more funding uh, behind it. Now, so that sort of brings you to two places. One is, what is the, what's the overall amount of funding that you're going to commit to it? Then the second one is how are you going to make a choice about how you spend that money? And again, I think that's where politically things can get quite difficult and I don't think that probably the, where we are currently uh, the government has been very explicit about those choices. I think it has been more explicit, like I said, than previous administrations, but you know that, that sort of two steps forward, and we need to make 10 or 15 steps forward is probably the way that I would view it. Um, and we do, I think, need to be clear about those choices. Otherwise, you get in the rounds again of, like say, of jam spreading and ultimately not delivering for the people that you're trying to deliver for.
0: No, that's really good. And if I were to put, put you on the on the spot, Paul, and say what does kind of more, more targeting, more explicit choices, what what should that mean for say, transport policy or skills policy, are there particular areas that you would focus on? Yeah,
1: so I would split this into, into two. I think there's there's one element which is about trying to improve um, quality of life and there isn't any particular reason why geography should play into that so why, there's no reason why you know, the number of people who've got no formal qualifications is half the level of what it is in in, in St Albans is what it is in Barrow. You know, that just shouldn't be the case. So I think there's a there's a targeting there which is, right, irrespective of geography, we go into the places where, where, where there are places lagging well behind the national average and we do something about that. And so that's driven very much by the data. Um, on the second side, the productivity side, I think it's, the, it's about thinking about the role that different places play in the national economy and how far away are they from their, what we would describe as their productivity potential. So you know, what we should expect to see in the UK is places like Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow in particular Leads to a certain extent, Liverpool certainly, actually leading the national average. You know, they're big places where you've got a lot of activity in one place, uh, and we see across the continent and in the US that bigger places tend to be more productive. In the UK, what we have is London, which is hugely productive, then the next set of cities down actually lagging way behind the national average, and then sort of the cities in behind that, that sort of fall uh, when the region might expect to see them. Now, the issue we've got there is not only are those big places lagging, and that's an underperformance in itself. But because they are big places, you're multiplying underperformance by something which is very big. And therefore, you then have this huge impact on the national economy. And that's where I think we need to have a disproportionate focus on uh, on these places to try and address that, because that is one of the biggest uh, national economic challenges that the UK faces. Um, that isn't to say you wouldn't go and make an intervention in Hartlepool or an intervention in Barrow, but we should be, um, should be conscious firstly that um, the state has actually got very few levers you can pull in order to, to turn those places around from an economic perspective um, because of just how small they are. And then from, a, um, from the second angle, even if they do make those improvements, those improvements are going to be very valuable for the people who actually live in those places, but from, a, nas- from a, a northern perspective or a northern midlands perspective or indeed from a national perspective, the impact's actually going to be pretty small.
0: And, and Selene, do you agree with that sort of, that you can kind of split between the sort split of between. quality of life type type issues and the economic issues? And I suppose, particularly in your, your role on, on the APPG for coastal communities, are there specific policies that you would like to see that you think would really help those areas as well?
3: I think there is a real need within all of levelling up to recognise, obviously, that cities have a greater economic impact on, on the, the economy, obviously. But out where we are it's slightly different you know our main industry is tourism people come to us to have a great time um, and we need to actually service that industry as well but we also need to provide the things that people want to come and do and some of the decision making for example there's a stretch of my Tarka trail which is a fantastic and um, cycling route which um, my county council was adamant was the number two travel plan active travel plan it wanted in all of devon and so of the six that went to the Department for Transport, even though it was number two from my county council, so that's devolved information going up to central because it was rural, all the five in Exeter got funded, but mine up in North Devon didn't. And I think we need to find a way within government to recognise that rural is different and that if we ever want to do things like active travel, decarbonise our transport systems, we need to find a way to assess those projects because it's not going to have, right, you know, as the other gentleman has said, the same impact as putting in a big transport infrastructure project in a city. So fine, that might mean we don't get it now, but the gap between rural and city life in in so many factors is, is disproportionate. And we do need to find a way to really level up the countryside and recognize what we do deliver from the countryside, which is actually food, which is quite important right now, um, not to mention being a a great place to come on holiday. So um, I I think there's there's a lot to do and to understand the differences that some of the policies that really do work well in London and roll out to Manchester, by the time they hit, very rural places they do just need some adjustment to make sure that the communities like Ilfracoon that is one of the coastal communities that has been left behind for a long period of time and you see those right around the coast this isn't a north-south thing you can go right the way around the coast and find towns like Ilfracoon um, which are desperate for investment but they are smaller so they don't need as much investment so yes the return won't be substantial but the investment isn't either
0: no, that's a really, really good point. And Andrew, obviously, the Northern powerhouse has a a whole range of different places. It has the big cities, but it also has has the small towns. C- can you maybe give some examples of what, of what it looks like for you know, levelling up or economic policy to look different in different types of places, based on what you've been doing there?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the um, what's clearly come out of the previous two uh, contributions is almost is battle between cities and towns that we we seem to sometimes get drawn into um, and i think some of the work that we've done recently is understanding that it's not a case of supporting one or the other and that both need to exist and support each other um, so we we did a piece of work recently looking at some towns across the north and one of the examples that we picked was in greater manchester and it was looking at the success of manchester allied to um, berry which is you know on on the outskirts of uh of manchester city center and how important it was as a place, once it became better connected to the city centre, um, how that place started to flourish. Um, people then could live outside the city centre, have a slightly better quality of life, if, if that's what you think of, of having a slightly bigger house, slightly lower housing costs perhaps, and a, and a slightly less hectic city centre style of life. Um, we saw Berry start to flourish much more. What that then does is then it attracts more people to Barry. So, you know, you, you start to see the, the visitor economy picks up and um, you start to see the retail offering getting better. And it's a better place for people to come, not only to live, but then you do start to see people coming to do business there as well. So there is there is a need to, to think about that. And they've had a very active council who have taken the decision to invest in specific projects in their area. Um, when a traditional business case might not have quite stacked up. You know, they've, they've had the um the willingness to to everybody get behind a particular project, put some money behind it, stand behind it and guarantee it. And that has then paid off in the long term. Um, and a lot of this is about longer term thinking beyond the traditional political cycle, I think. And one of one of the points that you mentioned earlier about the, the jam spreading and you know it, it being spread across too many places. I think that's absolutely right. I think what needs to happen to avoid that Um, we need to get away... Firstly, we we need to stop having competitive bidding for various tiny pots of money rather than just having an overall budget for things. And I think the White Paper did commit to doing that um, because with the greatest respect to any consultants, all that happened is the consultants that wrote the best bid paper generally were successful in getting an award from some of those funds and that clearly doesn't deliver um, the best outcome. So what needs to happen is the government needs to set around some of those indicators how it's going to measure which areas are the most deserving There will be some that are just below and just above the cutoff line, and that's going to be difficult politically. But at some point, if we are in a finite and constrained uh, resource world, those are the tough decisions that need to be made centrally. Um, And then once you've made that, you then devolve the responsibility down to those areas, along with the funding to deliver on that. Um, And I think it is a difficult conversation, but if we're ever going to get anywhere on this decades-old problem of regional inequalities, somebody at some point has to make those hard choices.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, Andrew, and certainly chimes with some some forthcoming IFG research coming out on the importance of more flexible funding for for local government. I think one one thing that's sort of been alluded to multiple times, we probably haven't tackled head on yet, is that, yes, levelling up is a policy agenda, it's also a political project, and so the question of whether the government needs to pick which areas to level up is not just a question of... Um, you know, what policies will succeed, but also what it needs to do to succeed politically. And Paul, you've maybe spoken most explicitly about that. But do you think that kind of the the politics and the policy here are kind of working together, or are they somewhat in conflict? Uh, um, it goes back to what
1: Andrew was saying in part about you know the the, the phony war between uh, cities and towns, very unhelpful divide between them. Um, clearly, the, poli- the politics of this has, has seen that. The, the marginal seats are in, in some of these towns and so therefore trying to, to skew the policy conversation towards them um, is seen as a vote winner. Um, I don't actually think that as Andrew was saying too don't think that's good for people who live in those towns or the people who live in the in the cities near them. Clearly there's a relationship between the two and what we see uh, or what we've seen in terms of London's growth for the last thirty or forty years is that's brought great prosperity to the people who live you know out sort of around the greater southeastern general who've travelled into to access the jobs that are there, and I think we should be thinking about that relationship when we look at, at other places. Um, I mean, there's always going to be a, a more general challenge that um, you know politicians are going to think about the marginal vote, and so that that means that which isn't necessarily always going to align with where where the policy challenges are, and uh, and so there's always that that tension was ever thus. Um, to some extent, the the white paper starts to. Um, Starts to make those choices. and you know the, the long sort of stuff that, that, that people sort of comment on around sort of the history of cities was, in part, a thing trying to sort of set up the fact that there are choices being taken here. I don't think it needed to be as long as what it was in the the white paper itself. But that was why sort of that sort of stuff was there. Um, but I think it's going to be something that will continue to be a challenge. Um, what I would have hoped is that the white paper would have been a little bit clearer in its framework, um, so that actually some of that could have been more more robustly. Um, Uh, defended when it then comes to sort of the the issues about economics and politics rubbing up against each other. Um, And I don't think that was probably in place in the way that it needed to be. So uh, I would expect that it will continue. And like I say, it was ever those, it will continue to be those.
0: And and Soleil, we've we've already heard many specific funding pots, funding pots, you know, like the leveling up funds. Um, Did you feel that sort of coastal communities were, you know, were sort of fairly treated by by those sorts of um, pots? Did they do quite well out of them, or did you see more of a skew towards other areas?
3: Again, the pots seem to have been very big. So um, in in Devon, none of our district councils got any of their projects. It went to a big park and ride down in Plymouth, and the Isles of Scilly got their ferry. It obviously had a transport focus, and my own district council's levelling up bid was apparently excellent, and it cleared the hurdles, but we'd run out of money before we got to it. Um, And that the criteria that was used to assess it whilst you know, it was a criteria, and I'm not suggesting it was wrong. uh, Nobody agreed with. And how we are two different levels out from the next door area and have the five most economically deprived areas in Devon, as defined by our own county council, yet is still a priority level three. I think we are still struggling a little bit with and I hate this race to the bottom. So I think, you know, I've had many, many conversations with Neil O'Brien. Um, about this situation where you have tiny district councils bidding for these pots. But I think the other point that I would make is, in, um, certainly in my constituency ahead of the 2019 election, the number two issue on the doorstep after Brexit was broadband. And that actually, when I talk about infrastructure, it's not actually going to be a new train station or a road. Um, It is broadband. We are still probably five years behind the rest of the country in our connectivity. Um, And that actually obviously comes out of a different pot of money. And we probably aren't good enough at shouting about how much progress has actually been made on that pot and so there is leveling up going on in completely different ways and i think again the the nuances and the the challenges around some of these pots and how it impacts on it because one of the uh, probably unintended consequences of connecting up my constituency is now more people can work from home from there or would like to have a second home there which in itself is now creating a situation whereby even though we have some very um High tech, strong employees, have an engineering firm over recess, employs 300 and currently has 43 vacancies. You know, these are highly skilled jobs that we cannot fill and there is nowhere for anyone to live. And that actually, we do need to look at how we level up the housing market so that people who work locally can live locally, because particularly when you're coastal, you can't commute in from an entire circle around it. You've only got a semicircle to come in from. Um, and the cost of housing in my constituency is not affordable now to the vast majority of people who work there, however well-paid they are, um, and that we we really have got ourselves out of balance with our, our housing stock. And again, tackling some of those issues are not actually hugely expensive. It's about levelling up the playing field between short-term holiday lets and long-term rentals. And making sure that when houses are built, people live in them, um, and that they're not just rented out for a holiday let, um, and actually some of those things don't cost a lot of money. And so I think there are clever things you can do in some of these smaller communities when people really understand what the issues are.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting, and Andrew. I'll give you the last word before we go to audience questions. It was interesting there that Selene was talking about the, you know, the, the formula for the levelling up fund and. I mean, is there a problem that, you know, no matter how hard the government tries to be scrupulous, there are always going to be questions then, you know, oh, how have you designed the formula? Is it sort of politically partial? How do you think the government can sort of avoid that um, impression of partiality um, in, in those sorts of policies?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there were, in some cases there were perhaps a formula was created to dare I say, get a particular outcome. Um, you know, on, on some of the areas that you saw receive funding, it was hard to think about how, how they could have met the criteria when you looked at some of the other places that were on the list. And I, I think what we need to come back to is that at the minute, beyond a white paper and a phrase, I don't think we really have levelling up yet. Nothing nothing has really happened in any significant way. Um, and when we're talking about the political ambition, there's a, there's a whole host of red wall MPs, if that's the phrase that we want to use that are sat there that must be worried because unless they do start to make some progress soon, they must be looking at slightly small majorities and what the current political environment is and starting to get quite worried for their future. So there is a there is a case for, for some of those MPs from you know from perhaps the backbenches to to start putting a bit of pressure on the government because otherwise going into the next election it isn't looking good for them and that does require, as I say, some of the hard choices. And if, if we need to find a way of taking the 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 job of of calculating what the criteria could be or what the formula should be out of the hands of politicians and having some independent body that does it you know we have we have an OBR that figures out what the economic backdrop is to to create a budget if we need to look at something like that I know we don't like creating you know more more quangos or, or whatever they might be but if that's the way that we can start to get people thinking there's transparency and some independence behind those things and that's got to be the way forward because you know as I'm sure all of us in the room have, have had these conversations so many times over so many years and we just never seem to make that fundamental push forward when we talk about the quantity of investment that, that Paul referenced earlier that, um, that was needed in Germany, you know. The scale of, of the gap in some of these out, you know, the, the things that we're addressing is huge and has been there for so long. It's not going to be um, addressed by a few hundred million pot here to, to invest in, in making some town centres look a bit, a bit prettier than, than they were before.
0: Oh, thanks very much. Andrew, so we've got lots of questions online. If people in the room have, have questions, I'll take a couple online first, but then uh, Penny will be going around with the microphone. So the, the most popular question says, um, but part of the, this is unfortunately an anonymous question, but part of the leveling up white paper talks about bolstering job opportunities beyond London. Do you think the cutting of 91,000 civil service jobs will have a major impact on this? Um, Paul, do you want to take that one? Uh, uh, not especially,
1: I don't think. Um, clearly, there's been a, a bit of a. I mean, there's a bit of a tension there in that the government has pursued a policy over the last couple of years of trying to push civil service jobs out of London, um, you know, jobs going to, to Darlington in particular. I don't think that probably will be harmed too much. I think by. By the cuts that are being made. But I don't know exactly where it is that they are going to, to make the cuts. And is it the case that actually it's back office functions for DWP in, in Newcastle that are going to get the, the cuts? So you have some functions moving out of London to Darlington, but actually elsewhere in the northeast you've seen some cutbacks. The reason why I don't think it'll have a, a big impact, though, is that we shouldn't be thinking about the creation and protection of public sector jobs if we're to an order of leveling up. We need to be thinking about the creation uh, of uh, of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of private sector jobs, and I think the, the the public sector stuff, sort of from the positive element of all that we're moving jobs out of London, gets uh, gets the headlines. But the reality is, is that we're talking about a couple of hundred jobs in in different places, and we should be th- talking about policies being put in place to create thousands and thousands of jobs, uh, and that's the way to, to think about it. So. Um, you know around the edges it might have um some degree of an impact but actually it's it's sort of it's the wrong argument that we're focusing on there it's the private sector element we need to be getting going and certainly in places lagging behinds by getting high-skilled uh, private sector companies to come and invest and, and grow and create those jobs that are needed
0: hmm. anything to add selena or andrew andrew
3: i think i'd just add back in the housing point we have lots of high-skilled vacancies we actually have a skills shortage in the southwest Um, And that actually uh, we lose our young people, they go to university and they don't come back. Um, And we need to actually find a way of getting more people there. Our unemployment is um, negligible again. Um, And therefore, it's it's not about creating loads more jobs because we don't have anyone to do them. We need to find a way of upskilling the people that are there and making sure that actually our our workforce matches the vacancies that we do have.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... I agree with what Paul said that you know moving moving a few civil servants probably isn't going to have a huge impact. If you think about some of the the things that the public sector can um, control, so for example Channel Four moving to Leeds um, that did have an impact. You start to see a, you know an, a, an industry start to build up around that. However, move, moving a few civil servants out of London will that make a difference? I'm not sure that's then going to spur lots of extra activity. Um, and if 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 you want to think about the significance of it, yes, it is great um, that you know that we are thinking about the regions. Um, But I think I'd I'd probably reserve, you know, cheering too much until somebody tells me that a permanent secretary is moving out of London.
0: Excellent. I think that's probably a subject for a a, a different (laughs) IFG event, but um, lovely to have radical suggestions. Do you have a question in the room? I'll go over here first and we'll come
4: down. Hi, thanks. It's uh, John McDonough from um, Recro Consulting, which is an employability and recruitment solutions business, so we do a lot of stuff in this area. Um, Agree with almost everything that's been said by everybody on the panel here, but I think there's a danger that we get seduced by the task, and we've got to get the basics right. Mm. And employability and skills is one of them, and we're not at first base with that. And it becomes, and I've seen this for 13 years, and this is what will probably happen beyond that, it becomes like one Python and the life of Brian. right? So when this stuff is pointed out to government departments or whatever, that it's not going to work or it's got to change, nothing happens. So how do we create an environment where it's safe for these organisations to be able to acknowledge we've got a problem and, and, and we're actually going to work through it as opposed to foot down and fly through it, which is what's happening again on a lot of this stuff, because yes, money's important, but a lot of this is about changing the thinking and behavior of the professionals. Now I know how I would do it, but when they resist, what do we do?
0: Paul, do
1: you want to yeah. ask that one? So, um, so it, it, it comes back to an interesting question around devolution and, and more money, in that there's a lot of money that is spent, particularly in skills and employability, and John, I know you've done a, a lot of work looking into this, um, uh, already uh, and it seems as if there's, there's a two-fold challenge. One is that we don't really understand where a lot of that money goes and then secondly in terms of the impact that their money that has in terms of what we can trace, we don't really know what the what impact it does have because we don't do the evaluations to the extent that we should do or certainly don't release the results in the way that where we, we should be doing. So I think there's a bit of an opportunity to address what John's talking about potentially through devolution where by if you were then to have a mayor or whatever the name's going to be in in other places, in place, that can firstly do an audit trail about what's spent, and then try and have greater influence, if not total control of how that money is spent. And that allows you, it provides a nice opportunity to probably change the way that things are done. Uh, It may well move it away from perhaps some of the reticence that you find in DWP, potentially, um, uh, into sort of breaking that and then allowing new institutions to, uh, to do what they need to do. But, of course, within that, it it can't just be a case, as you are probably to as well, John, of of just taking the mentality from the centre and then setting up that mentality again locally. I think breaking the link provides the opportunity to do something different, but it doesn't mean that something different will happen. And that's where evaluation becomes really, really important in in all of this. And I think across all economic policy, we don't do enough evaluation, but certainly in skills and employability, that's a really big one. So um, uh, we need to think very hard about that, which comes down to this point again about internal wiring, being really important um, as well as as um, as well as extra sums of money.
0: And so then you've talked a lot about you a lot about skills challenge, the challenge in the Southwest. Um, how far do you think that sort of local leaders there have the tools needed to, to deal with it? And can they do it differently to, to the way Whitehall has typically done it?
3: I think tackling the skills gap in my constituency is particularly difficult because we are 60 miles from the university. Um, you know, we have one Fe college, and Ilfraracum is twelve miles away, and the bus fares seven pounds. i mean it it's just very challenging for these communities to access, um, and particularly when you then overlay that with poor broadband that the whole situation is difficult. And I think um, I also, I chair a number of APPGs. I went to Blythe, I chair the um, APPG for Celtic Sea and up in Blythe, they have a STEM hub. And uh, I was teaching maths myself just before I was elected. And I do think there's much more we could do with um, youngsters at a much earlier age to make sure they've actually got those core skills in place. And the the STEM hub up in Blythe, I thought was brilliant because it worked very closely with local employers who were ensuring that people, the youngsters knew what skills they needed, but they also taught the teachers. And I think the thing I found very surprising, actually quite shocking when I was elected, and I lived in Devon for a couple of years before I was elected, was there were companies I didn't even know existed. I didn't know we were making torpedo launches and something that could find Russian submarines five miles down the road. Yeah, and, it, it, and I was teaching, and I'm taking careers lessons for year nine, and I don't even know these companies are there. And I think if there is a way of sort of bridging that gap because as um, technology has evolved and we do sort of move through this green um, transition, we are going to need far more skilled engineers and mathematicians coming through. And I do feel there is still a bit of a gap at the school that if you talk about becoming an engineer, people think you're going to be a car mechanic. And I, I know that sounds quite quite trite, but I think there is a gap at quite a young age before we even start to get into it. And if you can get your youngsters coming through wanting to learn and that learning is for life and it's not something that just stops when you've done your GCSEs, that then we have a much better chance of upskilling people as they move through. So I think the DWP has doing quite a lot of work in that area, but I do feel there's more we need to do working with local employers to make sure that we have the local skills in the local community that actually match what local employers are going to be looking for now and in the future because I, I, floating offshore wind for example I am very concerned that the work we're doing around the Celtic Sea and I have flagged in, we're not going to have enough engineers to service those machines going out unless we do something quite radical now to, to change the balance of skills in our community.
0: Now that's really interesting obviously the white paper set out local skills improvement plans as a, you know a first step probably to trying to do more of that at a a local level, another really good question online from Jack Newman at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy, I'm sort of going back to the devolution questions that we had earlier. So he says, there seems to be agreement in this discussion that different areas, cities, towns, and rural areas have different needs. Does that mean that each area needs a different set of powers in their respective devo deals that the government is doing at the moment? And if every area has different powers, what does this mean for national policymaking? Um... Selene, do you have thoughts on on. on what a Devo deal should should
3: include? I I certainly think for an area like Devon, it's much harder to see how a metro mayor would work, full stop, because we just don't have a big metropolis in the north of the county at all. Um, So I I think we do need to look at it more pragmatically. and I think I'm still waiting really to see what can happen. But my hope is, as we look at the evolution in Devon, is we're able to look more strategically across the whole county over some of these issues. I, I think we do see and saw during the pandemic neighbouring Cornwall Um, as a unitary authority, perhaps was able to think a bit more strategically about their housing issues, whereas we've got 11 district councils all dealing with the same challenge. So my hope is, as we move into devolution, is that we will be able to take a more strategic approach by taking some of that decision-making up, Um, because at the moment we have some of these uh, disconnects where uh, infrastructure decisions are taken at a county level, yet planning is taken at a local level, which, again, causes real imbalances. Um, And when we look at levelling up, we kind of need all of those decisions to be taken with one strategic output but I I think it's a a very difficult conversation to have and I know locally people would like more power but when we look at some of the decisions and particularly something like education those decisions have been taken in Devon for a long time yet there is still a huge difference in social mobility between the north and the south of the county so I think we do need to look more carefully locally how we are going to address those matters.
0: And Andrew do you find that in in the Northern Powerhouse as well that there are different areas sort of demanding different types of Different types of policies, different levers that they can pull?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it comes back to what Soleine said. That the, the challenges in these areas are quite different. It comes all the way back to the the, the kind of the, the opening remarks that were made that there are going to be different priorities for different areas. And obviously, whatever you think is your highest priority is probably the, the powers that you're going to be asking for. So there isn't a one size fits all in terms of what the size of these areas should be and, and what the powers should be. Um, I think there should always be the, the natural presumption that there is a more appropriate um, level for decisions to be made. So above you know, kind of a, a single local authority and thinking more strategically, as Selene just kind of alluded to. And there should always be the assumption that we are progressing towards further devolution. Um, it might not be at the first stage, you might just want to focus on a couple of priority areas. But again, as places become... More used to having these powers, more competent and build capabilities. There should be this general progress towards further and further devolution. Because, again, as uh, I think as the question said, there seems to be an agreement across everybody that you know there is an, an element that people close to the ground know what's needed best. Um, there are certain things that need to be reserved for for Whitehall and the centre. But you know, where, wherever it's something that is intervening in a local community and labour market, then surely the decision should be made as close as possible to that.
0: One yeah. thing that I think the question that gets at, Paul, is that multi-speed devolution might work best for the different areas, but it does also complicate things in, yeah. in Whitehall. Yes. Well,
1: yeah, well, definitely. I think that's where we always tend to, to get to when we then sort of default back to, to regions, is that it's just easy for the, the Whitehall bureaucrats to, to better understand these places by talking about a few big blocks, rather than actually understand the nuance of what's going on within them. And that's where I think devolution can, can change some of that. In terms of the the progress and the continued progress of devolution, because in fairness, I think it has uh, gone on this basis so far, is that we should be moving at the pace of the fastest. And we shouldn't be in a position of saying, well, actually, you know, the slowest doesn't want to take on these powers or isn't quite ready yet, so therefore we're going to do nothing. I think we should continue in the vein of, no, no, Greater Manchester wants some more stuff, so we're going to do Trailblazer, for example, Um, and be comfortable with the variation that we see in the short term, at least in terms of devolved powers. In the long term, the goal should be, I think... To, uh, to have a level playing field in terms of powers available to different parts of the country. But that should be, you know, probably a goal not for 2030 even, that the White Paper sets up, but maybe 2040 or perhaps even 2050. Now, you know, ultimately, what would that look like? Well, I think in a, uh, in a world where, you know, if, I guess if I, was, uh, if I was ruler, how would I try and, and do that? Um, I'd be having conversations with places about, um, about a budget for f- over a five-year period. So combined authority style um, uh, areas, so reduce the number of local authorities that are in place to try and create stronger and more empowered institutions. you then give them five years uh, set budget with very few strings attached. They then choose how they decide to spend that money. And it's up to them about whether they do it on skills or transport or or whatever. And the only constraining factor will be how much money are you going to give to one place rather than another, rather than, I think, this much more technical discussion, which is we're going to give you a bit of control over skills and you a bit of control over this and you a bit of a control over that. You know, make that element even and allow them to make the choices and you'll see then a different policy coming out as a result. I I think the question also touched on the issue about national government losing control to some extent. And again, I think from a from a national politician or from a, a civil service perspective, that might feel it's quite uncomfortable. But some of these decisions, the, the question should be, why is national government getting involved in these in the first place? You know, we should be moving towards, you know, there are these sets of powers here, which is something that should be delivered locally and decided locally. Then there's some things over here that is very much, you know, within the national remit and it's national government that does it. And I think within, you know, a, a, a better position on devolution will be clear responsibilities, clearly defined responsibilities over who has control for what, and national government needs to adapt as much as what local government needs to to that.
0: Brilliant. Um, I'll now take a couple of questions in the room. I might take them together so that we can Mm -hmm. um, keep speeding through. We've got plenty online as well. Uh, Kevin Larkin from the Coalfields Regeneration Trust. Um, We want to provide several million pounds of match funding to build small-scale industrial units in former coal communities, create jobs, economic growth, everything everyone seems to think is a good idea, and um, that catalytic capital. Um, but interestingly, in the discussion about levelling up, so often the third sector and private sector seems to be overlooked, and the opportunities we can provide, you know, everyone's been saying about resources being tight, and I just wonder what the panel feels is the best way we can move forward to build in the third sector and the private sector and not just leave everything to government at all levels. Thanks. Uh, do you also have a question? Oh, sorry, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, thanks, panel. Um, so, Al Vetch, I work for Slalom, which is a global tech data company. Um, I'm particularly taken by what you said, Andrew, I think you used the word competitive. Um, it strikes me that the, the structures in place for, for funding have the wrong narrative and the wrong process. We use words like competitive, bid, apply for, which seems to be, to me, complete antithesis to to levelling up when the centre has all the data available. So how can we prove both the narrative and the process to get the money to the right place?
0: Great, thanks. Now, Selena, I know you need to head off briefly, so do you want to provide your your thoughts on that? So role of the third and private sector and how we can get funding working well?
3: Um, I think with these things, it's often very hard to take these decisions in a centralised manner, and we actually almost need to be told from the other side, what you need to do. Um, I I had this conversation yesterday, actually, over the Celtic Sea and how we plan that level of investment around ports. And and I I think it's very easy to sit here and, and think we know what's going on. And actually, those of you with the funds and who are wanting to make investment are often much better qualified. to to take those so you know i'm not i'm not a minister and it's not my policy decision if if that's how we do it but i'm a big fan of actually letting people do what they're good at doing um, and letting them actually uh, sort of lean in Um, and i think if there are those sort of ideas in the room please do uh, lean in and share them because i think we are you know we do recognize that we need everyone on board to make this agenda work and that the whole point of leveling up is that actually everyone is in there it's not about just doing it from the center and if we do try and just do it from the center it's going to go badly wrong
0: and you, you mentioned when we were talking about civil service jobs that, you know, it's quite a small bit compared to the private sector. Mm. Are there particular ways that you think government can sort of partner better with third sector, private sector to, to make a difference for well, levelling up?
1: Certainly the uh, when the White Paper was published, there was a lot of criticism about, oh, where's the private sector? It didn't say third sector, interestingly, perhaps that's an issue. <laughs> but where's the private sector in, in all of this? Um, and... Uh, I think I was probably sympathetic towards the, the government on, on this and that. I think the role of the white paper is to set out what what is it that the public sector can do in order to then create the, the conditions that mean that the private sector or the third sector are then going to come in and invest off the back of that. So th- the question for me is that if it's if it's an issue around around skills, that's more of a, a public sector intervention that's required. I don't think I think it's quite difficult to get the, the private sector involved in that. There's issues around. Private sector investment in skills that might want to think about around the edges, but principally it's a public sector market failure problem. Um, if we're thinking about the underperformance of uh, of Manchester, um, the, the issue there is about how do you try and get more high-skilled, um, what we describe as sort of exporting businesses into Manchester that are going to generate that prosperity, bring about the productivity growth, um, and that to me seems it's about you know. What's the public sector going to do around skills? What's it going to do around commercial space, particularly within its city centre? What's it going to do around transport? That then means that when you know, the new growth industries that come about in the next 5, 10, 15 years uh, do actually come about, they decide to go and invest in Manchester. Um, and so that seems to me that there isn't sort of that direct relationship required straight off. I, I think what is interesting is, you know, if you look at LNG's recent announcement in the West Midlands, Clearly that's a public-private partnership to then go about delivering something. But that's something that has led, been led at the local level rather than the national level um, and is something that you know, clearly sort of fits into the levelling up agenda but is part of what you know, local government, and particularly in this case a combined authority, is able to do to, sort of, to think through the nitty-gritty about how is it we're actually going to deliver these things. And so I think for me it seems like it's, it's there where we need to make, make, make sure we're getting that element right rather than necessarily having that sort of thing in, a, in the white paper.
0: And Andrew, do you have thoughts e- either on that that third private sector question, or or on on how we can do funding better? Which I know you've already talked about a bit.
2: Yeah, I think on the um, on the private public private partnership or, or third sector partnership, I think it's a I think it's a great point, and I think um, I'm thinking about this more from an infrastructure point of view because those are the the potential um, projects that I've come across more often. And I think part of the frustration is um, generally the public sector wants to retain the control of the project, but it doesn't want to. He doesn't want to uh, take any of the risk, and then we start to get a bit funny about the private sector taking any of the reward at the end of it. So I think as a, the way the public sector approaches some of these is is probably skewed too far in the public sector's favour, which then puts some some private sector investors off, and particularly for for perhaps third sector organisations wanting to get involved. And I think often we've only ever looked at them with really large scale projects. I think when you start to talk about much smaller, more local projects. Um, I've been hearing discussions recently just on the outskirts of Greater Manchester of of third sector organisations wanting to do some kind of regeneration projects in partnership, match funding, um, and trying to find the right person that has the authority to agree. That is quite difficult. Um, And I think maybe that's something else that can come out of devolution is that there can be much greater freedom for local authorities or combined authorities, whatever it is, to go out and be able to make deals like that themselves without perhaps it needing to go through many, many, many layers of scrutiny, when in natural fact, some of these are quite small in terms of the financial risk that they pose. Um, on the uh, funding, um, yep, absolutely competitive bidding and applying is the wrong um, phrase and conversation that we should be having. Um, you know, opening up three different competitions for three different pots of funding that all need different applications is a complete waste of everybody's time, effort and money. Um, and it comes back to the conversation that I said earlier that there just needs to be clear criteria for what we're trying to achieve and then if we have x billions of pounds to put into this this is how much these regions need and once you reach the level where it's gone it's gone and that might be a difficult conversation to have now that's not saying that those other areas just below the line won't receive funding in the future it just means for now the priority is on those that meet this criteria that should be a success those areas will start to improve and then we'll come back to the rest at, at another point in time so i think that's the way that we need to be and and lots of this we need to be viewing it almost as an investment case this isn't just throwing a load of money at these areas and never seeing a return on the back of it these are all investments to address if we do get the skills right and we improve productivity we get more investment in areas there's a return to the exchequer at the end of it um and i think that sometimes is lost in the conversation as well it's it's almost seen as a there's a one billion pound pot of money they've all applied for it we'll just give them it and we'll never see any return on the back of it and the narrative really does need to change and i have to say with With Michael Gove, you've probably got a Secretary of State leading this now that has more authority than anybody has had before, and and the backing, hopefully, some of his colleagues, we won't get into how long they're all going to be around for. Um, But I think there is the ability now for him to really drive that on um, and try to change the narrative across Whitehall um, and make sure all departments are feeding into the right conversation rather than it being kind of on the fringes of Cabinet Office or Department for Communities. It, It does need to be led properly now.
1: Right. Can I just come very briefly so very on that briefly. as well? So the, so the two elements to this, one is longer term, you know, I think we should be trying to get to a place where we're trying to set place-based budgets and it avoids all of that. In the short term, I don't think competitive pots are going away and I do think that local government probably needs to be smarter about how it goes about doing that, which is here's an overall strategy we're trying to achieve. It's this big and we're going to use this piece of money to do this and this piece of money to do that and communicate that much more effectively than we've just got
0: this random project which you know, it's much more easy for white oil to bat away. Great, right, so we've got the last couple of minutes. A quick question in the room, and I'll tie in with a couple online.
5: Thank you, thank you very much, uh, all of you. Very interesting uh, discussion. Richard Parker from Gowling. Um, I think levelling up, yeah, it's a great phrase, I think, politically. Uh, and I think, without doubt, unless we address some of the challenges it, it, it presents, you know, our democracy in some way is, is going to be sort of undermined. Um, but... Um, I was more interested in sort of your views on some of the more, stru- more structural issues we face as a country in terms of economically and how, to the extent they are a drag on what we want to achieve. At the moment, we probably haven't got a functioning airport in the country. People can't leave and can't get back in. Um, young people have to wait six months for a driving test. If you need non-urgent treatment in hospital, you have to wait a year to 18 months. Um, I spent the holiday weekend in Cornwall where there wasn't a shop, a restaurant or retail out that wasn't looking for staff. And... I just wonder the extent to which, for all the ambition we have here, unless or the, unless or your views on the potential drag on on, on delivering this agenda, given some of the, the, um, the wider economic uh, challenges we face.
0: Great thanks. And I'm just going to roll in two more questions, and then your answers can be kind of very brief closing remarks. So One from, from Kerry at the Rural Services Network, and sorry to abbreviate, but um, given the metrics at a regional level, um, but rural areas are sort of below that. How can we ensure that rural areas are not forgotten in levelling up? And then from Julian Head, um, the Shared Prosperity Fund and more widely levelling up is supposed to sh- achieve outcomes based on the high level missions and achieve the six capitals. But there is no consistent baseline. We don't have the data often in different places. How, how do we deal with that mm. data problem? So mm. take your pick of any, any of those questions, whatever you can do in, in 45 seconds, Andrew. <laughs>
2: Who's taken me first? I wasn't expecting that. Um, (laughs) I think, in terms of how do we make sure areas aren't forgotten, then we've clearly got headline uh, measures that we want to achieve. And then it is for, you know, for probably areas below that to start to measure their progress against them. I'm assuming everybody's in agreement that we want to achieve these. So if you are a site in a combined authority, you should, you can measure what the educational attainment is at, at various levels, even down to school level. So I don't think there's an issue around that and we should be doing it and the centre can do that to be fair as well although the headline measure might be nationally they can look at sub indicators below that so we should be doing that um I didn't quite catch the one on shared prosperity fund I'm afraid about the data problem um all I would say is that it's a shame that the shared prosperity fund didn't match the previous EU funding which it was supposed to um an infrastructure failing and, and lack of capacity then yep I think we've got a real challenge coming out of the pandemic some areas have been hit worse than others and are struggling to recruit um and you know it, it is being backed up in terms of the, the, the airport situation. It's the pace of trying to get people approved to work airside because of it's a kill thing. So some of the people are there, we just can't get the approval to get them through. And then, and then some of the obviously in some of the other um, uh, some of the other industries that are struggling, in particular in hospitality, um, perhaps the pool of recruits that we would have had before might not be as large as it as it used to be. And I'll I'll leave it there on that on that point.
0: Thanks, Andrew, and put
1: um, Paul right. final word to you. So, wide economic challenges. Yes, I mean that goes at the realm of what's the responsibility of national government, and there are things to sort out for sure. And you know, if the if the national economy doesn't function so well, or the exchequer isn't as big as what it what it, it should be. That's going to be have issues in terms of money to then spend on on this particular project. I think the two things overlap, but there are things um, where they don't that need to be sorted. Rural areas not being forgotten. I think. Uh, it comes back to the point about you know understanding the role they should be playing. And I, I think if we're in the position of thinking you know rural areas should be above the national average on a whole range of economic indicators, I just don't think that's realistic. If we're in the position of thinking there are some rural areas that don't perform very well and we can do better and get them up to a, a, a benchmark, I think we should be trying to do something around that. We should also note that a lot of rural areas actually are, are very prosperous, so it's not all the case that they're, they're all behind. And then in terms of, of lack of data, I think definitely I mean that's something that and the, the, the white paper tries to address and the ONS has now got a tool around that. And there's an issue about, it's not just about having more data, but having a framework to think about that data is important too, uh, which the tool might suffer from a little bit. But uh, there definitely needs to be more data available than what is currently the case.
0: Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for all of your contributions. Um, I'm afraid we've run out of time. We had lots more questions. So sorry if we didn't get to your question online. We could have talked about this for much longer. Um, so yeah, I thank you to, um, to Selene, who's now had to leave, to, to Andrew and to Paul, um, and also to Lloyd's for, for sponsoring this event. Um, thank you to all of you in the room and online for, for joining in in what's been a really lively discussion. Um, a recording of this, if you've missed any of it, will be available. Or if you indeed you just want to watch it back again, will be available on our website within the next 24 hours. Please do share that with, um, with people who you think might be interested. And do keep a lookout as well for other IFG events that you can find all on our website. There will be plenty more coming up soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul.